everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I'm your host, Thad Forrester, and this is episode number 51. I was just scrolling through iTunes, and first of all, there are a ton of podcasts out there in every category, it seems like. So definitely in ours, in our genre. So the fact that you're listening, I guess, says a lot about you. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate that because there's a lot of things vying for your time. And also there's just a lot of podcasts to pick from if you're just someone who loves podcasts. I have 25 ratings now. So wow, (laughs) definitely nothing to brag about. But also... I appreciate all those five-star ratings because they're all, so far, they're all five stars. I'm guessing I probably know most of you. I don't know, but thank you for rating if you haven't. It's very easy to do so now, especially on the podcast app if you are an Apple user. Or you can just go into iTunes and do it you know, from, a, from um, a desktop. But your app is really easy to rate. I mean, you scroll down now and just hit the five stars, and you can tap to write a review, which is even better. So appreciate the recent review I got as well. But now I want to get into our guest today, Rich Brown. He is a former Marine. He retired as a Chief Warrant Officer three in 2012. And Rich is a founding member of American Warrior Society. It's basically an online community for the modern-day warrior monk. That's what they say. So they've just got a ton of different articles and all types of various material in here from fitness to medical to combatives to tactics to firearms to uh, there's some CIA stuff. And they also have a podcast, The American Warrior Show, and it's a great podcast. It's a weekly one, one that I found uh, several months ago. So I really appreciate Rich coming on today. We talk about his military career in the Marines. He left and came back. He's also a police officer. He worked as a corrections officer. He did all kinds of stuff and, and now he's he has a, his hands in a few things right now. He he also works with some nonprofits to help get people jobs that are immigrants or trying to immigrate here. Speaking of, they're coming. Some of them are coming from those countries that President Trump supposedly talked about that got a lot of backlash uh, just a few weeks ago in January. So we talk about that, and Rich has some really good insight based on his background, based on his business experiences and military, and and the people he's worked with. So I we we go into this hot topic, and I appreciate how he articulated his feelings, and I think it was very good. I could not have said it better. There's no way I could have. But he did a great job. And so I will warn you, if you do, maybe if you have kids listening in the car or kids around, uh, you know, my, my show is usually pretty clean. There is a, a certain four-letter word that is used a few times. Just want to let you know that you may want to listen to it some other time or, or listen to it. Well, it's up to you. Just giving you a warning, this one does have explicit content, but it's, all, it's only because of one particular word that is used that apparently President Trump used as well. So there's your warning. Had a great time with Rich. He's a great guy, great American. So, Rich, you're a founding member of and and the COO of American Warrior Society. What is AWS, I guess you refer to it as? Yeah, we refer to it as AWS, the American Warrior Society. It's actually, it's a, we call it, what is it, an online university for the warrior monk. You know, it's a place that uh, self-defense-minded Americans or people from all around the world can come and, and learn anything and everything to keep them and their family safe. What's the background with the business? Well, the backstory was, you know, my business partner, Mike Seeklander, and I, uh, we met in the Marine Corps. We met actually at, in Desert Storm, and when we got out of the Marine Corps together in 1995 to become police officers in Tennessee, people kept asking us, can you teach us this? Can you teach us that? So we started a training company in 95 and started teaching civilians and uh, SWAT teams and some other stuff, and that led into a law enforcement career. 
So really, I see it as a new extension of that same business. We're just using a different medium, the medium of the Internet, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. What makes it up? Like how do people – is there a membership or do you, do you write articles or how does it all work? You know, that's a great question. When we talked about probably four or five years ago when we talked about this idea and taking our initial training company and putting it in a virtual space, it was kind of like, well, how do we do that? Because the the way people were doing it was they would it would be free content, but you would have all these pop-ups and click-throughs, and it was really cluttered and not a good experience. And you didn't always know if the person writing the article had the reader's best interest at stake, meaning – if Remington is sponsoring this pop-up ad for thousands of dollars, are you really getting the author's honest feedback about a Remington firearm? Do you see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So what we wanted to do, Thad, was be a place where we're behind the paywall. There are nobody. There's no advertisement inside there. It's all our 100 uh, percent opinions and the opinions of our writers. We have um, – uh, former Marines, former MARSOC guys, uh, former SOCOM guys, lots of law enforcement people writing for the site, some former CIA folks writing for the site. So it's not just mine and Mike's site. It's a collaboration, a community of self-defense experts uh, that are writing and producing content for the site. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the site. I've just found your web your podcast a few months ago so i listened to it weekly but are, are any of yours on there do you write articles for it too yeah i write uh probably i don't know 20 25 of the articles on there are mine um and and that's you know that's the thing you know as podcasters we've got a show also that as you're well aware of the american warrior show which which is uh, kind of a vehicle to let people know that we're out there as well as sharing some information that might you know keep people safe and the response to it's been really good. We've, I think we just aired our 130th episode. So uh, hopefully your listeners can check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely have a link to it. And you've got a, a lot more reviews than I've got. Uh, you, you definitely have more episodes than I've got. So y'all keep up the good work. And, uh, I, I notice, I know you and Mike kind of do it together. Uh, so you'll have, and you have a guest sometimes, sometimes you don't. In fact, uh, recently you were talking about, you don't really have a sponsor when it comes to shooting. Is, is that right for you? No. Mike is the uh, champion. You know, it's, it's funny. When we started – in 1992, I went to this really high-speed shooting course uh, up, up at Quantico, and I came back, and in 1992, we started training together. And we would go to the range on the weekend, like on Saturday mornings, and we'd reload all Saturday afternoon. And, you know, I've been married for 30 years, Dad, so – all this time, Mike would be single or maybe have a girlfriend, and so my attention was to my growing family and not so much being a competitive shooter. So where we might have started off at, a, at the similar baseline, Mike definitely took off and is now you know, a multi-time national champion shooter. And, uh, yeah, he's got – he's a sp- full-time sponsored shooter, man. That's what he does. Yeah, yeah, it seems that way. And he's on, um, he's on TV. Outdoor Channel? Outdoor Channel has got a TV show with Mike Janich, who's another amazing American. You might want to get him on your show sometime. But uh, Mike, uh, Seeklander and I, we attend Mike Janich's uh, awesome Marshall Blade Camp every year uh, where we do a little edge weapons training in the beautiful town of Keystone, Colorado. 
but yeah, man, Mike and I, we've been beef fries, best friends, gosh, 27 years now. And we've deployed together, been in combat together and been cops together and special operations officers together and done a lot of, a lot of stuff together. And somehow uh, we're still hanging out together. <laughs> Maybe it's because you're, you're separated by distance. Maybe that's it, right? <laughs> yeah, that probably is. Because he does not live in the same town that I do anymore. Well, you you just you touched on this a little earlier, but will you go into your background and what qualifies you to be, you know, for the American Warrior Society and for the the how you got into that business and training people to to shoot and and for self defense? Yeah, and you know, to do that, I probably we need to go back to like 1980 or 81 when I was 10 years old. We were living in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was uh, a minority in my class there in Memphis. And I got um, there was some bullying from uh, some of the other students that you know evidently didn't like a, a white kid in the class. And uh, so my parents put me in. They couldn't afford to, to move us to a private school, so they put us in uh, a martial arts dojo. And uh, not that I learned any secret ninja technique, because that certainly didn't happen, Thad. But what I did learn was, you know, I, I became um, empowered. And it taught me that, um, you know, I could stand up for myself and uh, learn some self-direction, self-discipline things, some of those intangible things. And it started me down that path of, um, you know, realizing that there are other people that probably feel the same way I do, powerless in their circumstances, so I continued this this life in the uh, martial arts and um, then moved into the military. You know, I wanted to serve my country and I became a Marine infantryman. And I remember, Thad, when I told my dad I was going to join the Marine Corps, I was I was already married. I got married a month out of high school. So, I, But I did the cowardly thing that I waited till he was in Canada. <laughs> and, and then I called him and said, Dad, I joined the Marine Corps. And he was – Oh, my God. He was so upset. He's like, well, at least tell me you're going to learn a skill, son. I'm like, uh, no, I'm going to be in the infantry. And uh, but long story short, you know, I, that's all I wanted to do from the time I was a kid. You know, once I once I got into the martial arts and started discovering what the military was all about, I just thought, man, why would anybody want to do anything? But I mean, it's almost like you never have to grow up. You get to run through the woods and shoot stuff and blow stuff up and and they pay you to do it how awesome is that <laughs> and you were looking for a fight Sounds like. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't say that but <laughs> more to protect people you know um and that's the way i see our our military you know they're protectors first some of the stuff may superficially look like we go into they call it fishing fighting in other people's houses you know but, um, you know, some of it may look like that, but in reality, it's really to, to keep people safe. So I deployed, uh, let's see, three times, went to 20-something different countries uh, within my first three years in the Marine Corps. And I said, man, I, my wife's going to leave me if I don't get out of this stuff and do mm-hmm. something else. So, so I went to be instructor at the School of Infantry, and I taught patrolling and, um, gosh, tactics, weapons, everything, you name it. For three years, and then Mike and I uh, got out, and we moved back to, like I said, to my home in Tennessee, and we started training folks, and we got jobs as police officers, and that led to um, – did that for three years, did corrections as well, 
And then I think I was so dissatisfied with being a police officer. You know, it was not what I thought it was going to be that um, I decided I was going to go back and to the Marines and uh, Rich, did that. Rich, what was it about the police officer that was – because this is back in the 90s. Is that right? Yeah. In the yeah. early 90s. So what was it that you didn't like about it? Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. So we, we don't have to go there if you don't want. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I was the – I went to the Corrections Academy first with the Knox County Sheriff's Department, and I was the president of my class and thought, okay, man. This is this is pretty good. I'm, I like this. Got on with their special operations team, which is amazing. And then I got uh, I was still training this uh, Maryville City's SWAT team, and uh, they asked me to come on over there. So it was going to be a pay raise, and I I wanted to get on the road anyway. So they sent me to the police academy, and I go there, and I graduate. I'm the honor graduate, president of my class. I get the director's award. I'm like, man, this. This seems to be in my blood. This is what I was made to do. But I got in there, and I I don't mind the going against the bad guys and doing that kind of stuff. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with writing reports and doing everything above board and and all that kind of stuff. But the problem was the administration was horrible, and they created so many roadblocks to doing your job that it was um, it was unbelievable. For instance. I would get called in on my day off that, and the chief of police, like, eh, he wants to see you. He's concerned about something. So he'd had me waiting in the hallway for hours, and then I would get brought in, like, did you assist Officer so-and-so last night? I'm like, yes, sir, I did. He was in a fight, and you know, I'm like, okay. You don't ever do that. You know, if, if you see a fight with a, another officer, and I don't care if he's getting his brains beat out with a tire iron, you don't help him unless – your superior tells you to. And I'm like, hmm, I don't like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. So there was um, – and then there was a lot of infighting between the county and the city, and I think this is common throughout throughout the country where literally the chief of police told me that he was at, he was at war with the sheriff. And uh, I shouldn't be talking to sheriff's deputies, which a lot of the sheriff's deputies – were my friends from the Marine Corps Reserve Unit because when I got out of the active duty Marine Corps that, I stayed in the reserves. And um, so I, I just I couldn't handle that, and uh, it, it didn't jive with my moral compass, my ethos, my ethics, none of it, and um, I, I knew it was time to, to do something else. Yeah, I can't blame you there. So this was this was local issues, not coming down from the federal government. Oh, no, no, no. These were all local petty infighting. And I think the final straw was I was in court one day, and I kept looking at all the bailiffs, and they were really old. That I mean, they were in, probably in their 80s. And um, one day it dawned on me who they were. I'd seen their faces before, and they were the retired chiefs of police from my department. And so I walked over there to one of the bailiffs while the court adjourned, and I said – Sir, why are you working here? Aren't you, you know, chief so and so? And and he looked up at me, and he said, "Son, I gotta eat." And I went, "Wow!" So I started looking into the retirement system for uh, state employees, uh, and I thought, "Man, I, it was dismal." And I knew, of course, the retirement system I had just left after my six years on active duty 
And my, you know, I took it to my wife. I said, I'm miserable. She goes, well, why don't you go back in the Marine Corps? That seems like the only time you were happy. So that's what we did. I'd wonder that. wonder why you got out and went back. So at that time, well, you'd already been to, I guess we back up a minute. What about Desert Storm and Desert Shield? And what was your role there? Um, when I joined the Marine Corps, like I said, I was in the infantry, but I remember they told me, you're going to be a mortarman. I'm like, what in the world is a mortarman? So uh, I learned that as an 0341, it's an indirect fire. We fired an 81 millimeter mortar or a 60 millimeter mortar. You know, we can fire over over mountains and stuff to, to hit the enemy. Well, when I checked into my first unit, they didn't need any mortarmen, and they looked at my scores, and I was a pretty smart guy. So they said, we're going to put you in the fire direction center. So I worked in the fire direction center, which is a fancy way of saying we control where the Ford Observer calls in and says, I have tanks in the open. He tells us where we are. We plot it all out. We give do the math that allows the gunners to put the uh, elevation and deflection on the uh, mortar tubes so they can accurately impact the enemy. So I did that, but then Desert Storm broke out, and uh, my company commander said, I don't want uh, Lance Corporal Brown to be in your FDC. I want him to be my uh, – basically part of the battalion's fire support cell so we would um, so it was a group of guys it was an artillery officer myself and then the the pilot the marine captain who was normally a helicopter pilot but for the war he was assigned to us to control the air and we um, dropped a lot of ordnance on the enemy during during uh, the ground war and uh, matter of fact about almost this time 27 years ago now, we were actually one of the units that uh, – that highway of death coming out of um, Kuwait City uh, leading in back into Iraq, that miles and miles of carnage, part of our uh, fire support sale had some some to do with that. What's the difference between your role? You talk about dropping a lot of ordnance. Mm-hmm. Can you compare the role that you were in uh, versus a JTAC? Yeah, a JTAC uh, – I think it stands for Joint Terminal Air Controller, and that was really be what our FAC, our forward air controller, the pilot would have been responsible for. And then he had an enlisted Marine that was assigned to him, and they they handled. We called it back then the wedding cake. Hmm. That the, all the all the I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, Thad. No, I haven't. The planes would be you know flying extremely high altitude. They're circling in these big arches, and then as they start getting closer on their fuel or whatever. They would start coming closer and you know closer to us. So they would—it's like an inverted wedding cake. The, the tighter the circle, the closer to the ground they got. And then we would call them in, and then when they would go uh, Winchester on their ammo, and they'd roll out, another one would roll in from the wedding cake and start doing runs for us. But my job was to coordinate um, artillery fires in conjunction with what our air assets were providing. Okay. What type of aircraft were these? Um, I forget which Marine Air Wing was supporting us, but they were mostly, you know, AV8s and um, F18s. And okay. we also had we also had something interesting back then that they don't have now, and that's the OV10 Broncos, which is a, a reconnaissance and observation uh, aircraft that was actually a propeller. They were used extensively in Vietnam. They were still around during Desert Storm and 
So we would have them kind of lumbering over the battlefield, and they were giving us real-time reports on what, what they were seeing. So it was really uh, provided a, a degree of lethality to what we were doing. You're one of the few Desert Storm guys that I've had on the show. Uh, what Did you go to Iraq or Afghanistan? No, I didn't, and that's an interesting segue real quick. When I came back on active duty, that the only way I could keep my rank, I had picked up staff sergeant in the reserves. And like I said, I wanted to come back on active duty. So Mike and I, uh, my business partner, Mike Seeklander, and I had toyed with going in the SF. And we talked to a recruiter, and I remember taking the paperwork home, and I had gotten a, a, a slot to go to selection at um, – I think it was Fort Bragg, SFAS, Special Forces Assessment Selection. And I come home to have my wife sign that 1966 page whatever statement that she acknowledges her husband's joining the SF. She broke out into tears, and that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> but to keep my rank to go back in the Marine Corps, the only way I could do it was to come on recruiting. If I if I tried to go back into the infantry, they were literally going to make me a Lance Corporal again, which is like a an E3, and I was an E6. Or you could help out the mission to become a canvassing recruiter right in your own hometown. <laughs> so it sounded like a pretty good deal. But the problem, Thad, was on 9-11, um, I had become a career recruiter by then. And you can't once you're in, you can never get out. And then I remember I became an officer uh, later in my years, and the commandant of the Marine Corps came to Paris Island where I was stationed at and said – and told a, the auditorium for full of Marine Corps officers. And uh, no enlisted Marines present. He said, let me tell you something, gents. You go home tonight, and you tell your wives you're getting in a fight. You, then I want you to get with your monitors and decide when and where you're going. But everyone in this auditorium's going. So I call my wife. I'm going. And I start looking at these – they had these IA billets, which were like quick fills, like we need somebody in the next 30 days. You're going to be here for seven months, and you, you're coming right back. So I'm like, okay, cool. That's what we're going to do. And um, so I, st- I call my monitor, and he's like, you can't be calling me. You know, Did you not get the commandant's white letter that came out today? I said, I just talked to him yesterday. He told us all we've got to call our monitors. He's like, no, it's coming out, buddy. Just Just hang loose. And he hung the phone up. Five minutes later, a letter came out and said the commandant's been telling a lot of Marine Corps officers that they're all going to the fight unless you're a 4810 and one other MOS, which is you know what MOS is, right, Thad? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's your, um, your job. It's right? your job. But. Yeah. Well, my job was a recruiting operations officer, so there was only 16 of us in the entire Marine Corps, in the entire Department of Defense for that matter, and uh, said if you're a 4810, you cannot go. Your commanders will not endorse it. Nobody will approve it. You're staying right where you're at. So I could not leave the continental United States, which is sad and, and odd. Here's what I'm thinking. So just correct me if I'm wrong, Rich. You know, in Desert Storm and Shield, I mean, we it wasn't that long. We kicked some butt over there. Oh yeah. And then and then now this war, we we were attacked like we were. And so everybody is was so fired up, and you had young kids, you had adults, all type of people saying, "I'm joining now because of this," and just mm-hmm. such a different, such a different war. Yeah, it is a completely different war, and you know, um, almost all my friends, of course, uh, the problem with being a recruiting operations officer and not being able to go to the fight 
is you got to sit on the sidelines and watch your friends go and fight and die. And, you know, three three young men that I put in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, came home and are and are buried in and around where I live today. So it's kind of like I live in a county full of ghosts, if you will, yeah. uh, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I have often wondered if the guy who recruited my brother knew that he was killed. And I've wondered that for many years. And then my wife was at the grocery store at a at a different grocery store than she normally shops at in a different mm-hmm. town. And this guy saw the, the JAG 28 sticker on the van. This is just like um, back in the summer or fall. Oh, wow. And he walked up to her and said, did you know Mark Forster? Because I recruited him. She said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm his, he was, I'm, I'm his uh, sister-in-law. And this was a guy that had recruited him in Tuscaloosa. And so he, he did know about it. And he had talked about the effect it had on him and how he, you know, couldn't work for a few days. Is that, what kind of effects did it have on you when you found out some of the, the guys you recruited were killed? It's, uh, it's heartbreaking to this day. And I realized that, you know, Marines died, you know, like, you know, there's a saying, that's what we do, uh, service we provided this country, but it, it's, I never knew them as Marines, if that makes sense, that mm-hmm. I knew them as young men in high school and in, in the, in this youthful moment of their life. And, you know, I have two sons and, uh, I think I kind of saw them as surrogate sons. So knowing that I had a hand in, uh, you know, the tragedy that befell them and their family is uh, a burden I will live with forever. Yeah. Wow. That's that's tough. It is. And I I know that, you know, some of them got killed on a reenlistment. You know, one of them did. And and, um, you know, so it's not like, well, they had already their first enlistment had came up and they had chose to stay in that life. But, you know, kind of like your brother, Thad, you know, one of them, uh, let's see, two of them had no children. Uh, and they left, you know, no, no one behind really. And I like, I think you, what led you to write your brother's story is you don't want their memory to fade. And, uh, it, it's just, um, especially here in Tennessee where I live, you know, one of the highways is named after a young man I put in the Marine Corps. There's a bridge named after another one, um, and I go down those roads to this day. So it's inescapable. Yeah. And, and it should name. be. And it should be. It, I should never forget them, and I don't want to. Yeah. You know, I mean, your role is needed as well, and there's, there's a every job I feel like. I, I haven't served, Rich, but every job is important and so you've 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 been in the fight and then been the one putting the guys in the fight so you've you've would you say that's two extremes in the in the profession it is and something i never thought i would i would do i uh i am much more comfortable breaking things and blowing stuff up than i was talking to high schoolers so what's interesting I didn't necessarily follow the script when it came to recruiting. So this is one thing that I feel good about is I was always honest and upfront. I'm like, look, man, if you're looking for college money and, and, um, and, you know, a really sweet gig, Marine Corps ain't for you. 
You know, if you want to stand in the mud and suffer with, with your brothers and, and potentially put a rifle in somebody's face one day, then maybe the Marine Corps is for you. You know, I mean, it requires a weird personality to, to, to serve in the Marine Corps. And I'm aware of that. And I was always honest with the young men and women I put in. But, uh, it is two extremes. And I turned out to have a knack for it. I was a very successful recruiter, but I was a very honest recruiter. I didn't sugarcoat anything to the parents or anybody. And at the time I was a recruiter, you got to remember that the war wasn't going on. Matter of fact, the morning 9-11 happened, I had just turned over a recruiting substation that I ran here in rural Tennessee, and I was going up to run uh, recruiting operations for the entire state of Tennessee. So recruiting in, in this wartime was not something that I did. Uh, you know, Even though I was recruiting at a time of relative peace in the late 90s, I still wanted to be intellectually honest with these young men and women. I, I owed it to them and their families to do so. Sure. What all did you learn in the Marine Corps? Oh that could gosh. be pretty broad, but I'm I'm really curious some things that stand out to you, whether it's skills or it's other you know lifelong you know principles. Oh, that's that's a great question, and you know the things I learned in the Marine Corps, I've been able to translate to this business, you know, the American Warrior Society. Um, whether it's a little bit of sales that I learned in recruiting, and as well as all of the self-defense related skills. But even still, that's not necessarily the case, and and I'll make a brief segue here. When it's hard to translate some of the warfighter skills into the self-defense community of, of the lawful use and context of self-defense here in America, because if I'm teaching an ambush technique to a group of Marines, you know, uh, we're going to kill everything that's in our, our kill zone. That's why they call it a kill zone, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in order to secretly uh, patrol to a position that puts us at a tactical advantage where we wait and then stealthily execute a predetermined uh, ambush is premeditated murder. So you can't necessarily teach that to civilians in the context of lawful self-defense. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I never really thought about it that way until years later. Like, wow, that was really what I was teaching. How to, people had to commit premeditated murder. Most of the time, uh, but but I think a lot of being a police officer is applicable. Um, but the Marine Corps, you know, it's all the intangibles: poise, courage, self confidence, self direction, self discipline. All the things that I didn't necessarily get in college later on, I got in the Marine Corps. If that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing anything for the guy beside you. Yeah, you know, all of my. Like I told you before we, we came on air, you know, my brother's a Marine, my cousins are Marines, um, all my friends are Marines. You get in that community, and it's easy to, to go, well, I can – there's an automatic trust there. You know what I'm saying, Thad? I mean, with a civilian, I'm like, hmm, I don't really have a whole lot in common with you, and I don't know that you've ever been through the same crucible that I've been through. Yeah. Well, with a with a marine, it's an you're a known commodity. Oh, okay, yeah. Would you go to Paris Island? Okay, yeah. Thirteen weeks. Yeah, I get that. And we we have a common bond, and there's a common trust that we can um, that I have with him probably right out of the gate that I don't have with most Americans. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of a story in World War One. There was a um, 
an American nurse, and she was in a field hospital in France. And all the men at the time, it was fashionable to have a mustache. Well, the Americans couldn't have a mustache. So she's looking down the line of the wounded soldiers, and she sees this one guy without a mustache. And she says, oh, my goodness, you must be an American. And he says, no, ma'am, I'm a Marine. And I always chuckle at that because it reminds me of how a lot of Marines kind of think of it, you know. Yeah, I haven't heard that. To make sure we have time on your show, you often talk about current events. Yep. And uh, recently, the hot topic now. Now, for the listeners, you know that. Uh, well, you maybe you don't know that. Sometimes I record these episodes pretty far in advance. I'm a I'm a part timer, and they release every two weeks. So it's hard for me to stay as current as you do. You know, as you and Mike do with your show. Mm-hmm. I do occasionally. But a hot topic in December, or no, it was January, I guess. Yeah, with uh, with President Trump's comments about Haiti and some other countries in Africa, maybe some other countries in South America, I'm not sure, but got a lot of attention. And you had, an, I guess, an impromptu session on your episode a few weeks ago about it. I'd like to elaborate on you know, why why you feel the way you do about what he said about the shithole countries and just some of your background because you you have a different perspective than most people have on it, I believe, because of your background. Yeah, sure, and and um, I did go on a little rant, and um, I wasn't sure how that was going to be received, but I've got a lot of all positive comments about it. Mm-hmm. I took it. Uh, <laughs> well, I appreciated that. I wasn't sure how you did take that, but um, you know, I, it reminds me of this thing that. President uh, John Quincy Adams once said, he said, facts are stubborn things and whatever may be our wishes and our inclinations or the dictates of our passions. Do you know this quote? No, I don't. Yeah, he says they cannot alter the state of facts and the evidence. So I would submit that the evidence clearly indicates that most of the countries in in, uh, sub-Saharan Africa is what we're really talking about because that's what President Trump was talking about, that they're shitholes. And let me get this out of the way up front. I love Africa. I've been to Africa. It's a beautiful continent. You know, my brother and I both served our country in Africa. I have absolutely found the people in Africa to be warm and engaging. They invited me into their homes, into their lives. They fed us. They shared with us what they had. And you know what? That I repay that kindness by hiring, hiring Africans that have immigrated to our country. And like I said in the podcast, I've partnered with a 501c3 company. Here in Tennessee, that helps to bridge the gap between the immigration policies, the people, and us as employers. We love our African team members. Love them. They're amazing people, and they're going to be amazing Americans. They are the future of our country, and I truly believe that. And if you ask them, Chad, that they will tell you they're fleeing a shithole. And and if it was so awesome there then why did they strive and struggle for years? And if you hear the stories of what it took to get them from there to here, it would make you weep. So to lie to their face and act as if their country that they suffered in was some misunderstood paradise, it's, to me, intellectually disingenuous. We need to be uh, responsible, but we also need to call a, uh, you know, call a spade a spade. So I went on my little rant, and uh, and the other thing that, that it reminded me of, and as I thought back on those comments that I made in in, uh, in the heat of the moment, 
was, you know, I'm I'm from Scots Irish folk here in East Tennessee, and I went back to Scotland last summer, spent ten days there, loved, you know, going back to the homeland was important to me. But when my ancestors left Scotland for Northern Ireland and then, and then Northern Ireland on into America, they were fleeing a shithole. And you know why it was a, a shithole? Because you know, for a variety of reasons, but specifically when they left Northern Ireland, there was some Terrible reasons why, uh, incredible poverty. You know, they, they, they came to Ulster Plantation because they were fleeing from, uh, all the crap that was going on in, in, uh, Scotland. But more importantly, there was some test acts by Queen Anne, I think, in, in Northern Ireland. She outlawed their religion. You know, they couldn't hold off. They couldn't get married. They couldn't go to school. They put tariffs on the, on flax. That they were growing, and then they switched to wool, and they taxed the heck out of that. And finally, they said, "We've had enough of this," and they came here, and we've we've turned into great Americans. And that's exactly what's happened in Africa. And one of the things I mentioned that <clears throat> was the metric that I prefer to use is the same one the United Nations uses, and that's that the happiness index, right? Have you heard about that? I have. And your listeners can go online. You can download the report. It's only 38 pages that were part of the report that discusses Africa. It's written by four amazingly brilliant Africans using African governmental data and social surveys of real Africans, how they feel. And they're miserable. They're fleeing. And as the report says, the youth are voting with their feet. And if you want to talk about how they became uh, shitholes, we we can certainly talk about that. But I just think that – there's too much emphasis on feelings instead of facts right now in this country, and I, I find it disturbing. Um, you know, it, whether it's it's any of these social things that we see going on right now in the country, when you try to look at it objectively, you're like, wait a minute, this this isn't really true, you know, but it's how somebody feels, and it creates a narrative that becomes self-perpetuating. Rich, what was the very first thought that you had when you heard that? President Trump said or may have said that comment? Actually, it was a non-event for me because I think, uh, you know, it was, he, he, he lacks tact and candor. I got it. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not going to, you know, let's be honest here. Uh, I wish somebody would take his doggone Twitter away from him. Uh, I think it could be harmful and destructive. But I thought in this case, I thought he was just being honest. I didn't see any racial animus to the remark at all. But again, I think that for those out there that are looking for that, all of a sudden it it feeds right into their confirmation bias. Oh my gosh, you know, look at this, look what he said, and and it became some racially charged comment that I don't think it was at all. Uh, it's just by any metric you want to judge Sub-Saharan Africa by, they are their governments have put them in a position where they're they're miserable and they're fleeing, and. Um, but you know what's even more destructive is our immigration policies towards sub-Saharan Africa. We are pulling the best and the brightest away from that country, and I didn't really realize that until I looked into it a little deeper. The percentage of the uh, the immigrants we're getting are very highly educated sub-Saharan. I didn't Africans. know that. Huh. Oh my gosh. They are, and I, want, I read somewhere it's like 67% of them hold a bachelor's degree or higher, which of course is way more than than natural-born U.S. citizens hold uh, higher education. So, 
but it's a it's an intellectual drain on their the the uh, the continent if you really think about it. Well, you know, like you, when I first heard it, I thought, okay, well, that's that's probably true, and I haven't been to any of those countries, so my thinking is a little different. I don't want to act like that, you know, I know everything because of somebody else said it, but I definitely did not ever think, oh, wait a minute, okay. What race are these people? What color are these people? It never even crossed right. my mind. Me either. It's just it's the country, and and we and I also thought how fortunate we are to have been born and live in this great country that we do. I mean, man, we are so fortunate. And I guess you can say that a lot, lot with a lot more power than me because you've been all over the world. Well, I don't. I mean, I think all Americans are. You know, they they certainly have the right to their opinions. I I would kid up tomorrow and fight to. To defend anyone's freedom to say whatever they want, and um, you know that, I'm fine with that. But just because you're saying it doesn't make it a fact. Just because you feel it doesn't make it a fact. But you're certainly say what's on your mind. Um, the the problem, you know, I started reading about Sub-Saharan Africa probably 15 to 20 years ago. I became interested in the Rwandan genocide. I remember, gosh, that was been 24 years ago. And um, I read everything I could read on that, and that led me into reading about Rhodesia becoming Zimbabwe, and then I followed the economic collapse there in Zimbabwe under the rule of the uh, dictatorship, rather, of Robert Mugabe. And I think a lot of Americans don't really know anything about Africa, that part oh, sure. of the world. Yeah. But they have these uninformed opinions that they hold as fact, and that's the problem I have. You know, Rhodesia, I have two African dollar bills. One is a $2 Rhodesian note, and at the time it was issued in 1975, I think the note is, it was worth more than the U.S. dollar. The Rhodesian dollar, you know, Rhodesia was called the Switzerland of Africa for a reason. It was feeding the continent. It had all these riches, and it was poised for greatness. And then the winds of change, you know, blew through Africa in the 1960s, and and the British government and all these Western powers completely gave up their colonies. So these African countries, uh, you know, when they gained independence, they had they inherited little or no debt and, that, and amazing infrastructures, and and they remained so until the 80s when they started gobbling up money uh, from foreign banks. And uh, the money that was given to them was to build roads and ports and power plants, anything and everything that we could do to speed up economic development and you know, create capacity. So that they could ultimately repay the loan. It wasn't necessarily complete, um, you know, just some sort of altruism, you know, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's like, hey, man, if we give them the money, they're going to be able to build this stuff and they're going to be able to repay us. Sounds great, but that's not what happened. Why? Governmental corruption, natural disasters, wars, bad policy, greed, some bad luck, but it made it impossible for them to pay the debts. And you know what we ended up doing? Western countries, well, we didn't want to, we don't want to look like the bad guy. We're crippling these, uh, poor sub-Saharan African countries with debt to, to repay these rich, rich countries. So in the 2000s, we did this debt forgiveness. And if you remember, you know, U2's Bono and other NGOs and rock stars were out there. Let's forgive all this because the bottom line was these loans that were taken out were only benefiting these dictators and their, their close families, you know. 
So we, we completely relieved them of their debt over the past, you know, one by one over the past 15 years. Those, those, there's been 30 African countries that have seen complete debt forgiveness. Wow. And yet, and if you say, well, how has that worked out? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that the West, people like me and you, uh, through our taxes, we've, we've ate that. And did it work? And I would submit that if happiness and economic progress and education, nutrition, social justice, basic human services and infrastructure is any sort of metric to whether there was a success or not, then I would say the answer is no. The people are not happy. They don't have those basic things. And, and thus, you know, it reflects in the, the metrics that the UN studies. And, and that's why I'm comfortable saying they're shitholes. And it has nothing to do with the people. It has to do with the governments that they suffer under. And it's not about race. And I'm so sad that there's a segment of America that would make it that way. And I would say to them, go out and hire a Burundian like I have. Uh, two two Burundians. They're amazing people, and their country is 154 of the 155 countries. And they're just on the hat. You're talking about the happiness, yeah, the happiness index, yeah. index right? Wow. That so it's like, and these are wonderful people, wonderful people. Get to know them, and they will tell you the stories of how they fled and and what they ran away from, and ask them if if they left a, a paradise back home and on their continent. No, they did not. Sorry, I started ranting again. I apologize. That's, see that, I, and I really wanted your your input here because I, I what you said a few weeks ago, off the cuff, I guess I, I really agreed with it. And but I, you know, I, I haven't been there, I haven't done that, but I, I wanted your input because of your background, and uh, so appreciate that. You know, my my knowledge of of Africa, at least growing up, was um, you remember the. We are the world, you know the Michael oh, yeah. Jackson, all them with the song, and you know the, the Ethiopian kids starving. That's that was, that's what I knew about Africa at that, sure. you know, at that time in the eighties. Yeah, and I and you know, I somebody turned me on to the writings of an uh, author named Peter. I think his name was Peter Godwin. Peter was a white um, Rhodesian, and uh, he lives here in New York now. He's one of those awesome Americans that uh, that we got from sub-Saharan Africa. And he wrote some amazing things about being a, um, you know, a white former colonist growing up in, in sub-Saharan Africa that I thought was really good, just a really good human story. And he looked at it from all angles. Um, and I got hooked on some of his writings and some of the other ones. And like I said, I've been fascinated by this and I love, uh, hiring men and women from that part of the world. They're amazing. But why do we have to, to be so offended, I guess, by Trump's uh, poor use of words. But again, it's like by any metric, tell me, tell me there's something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd love to hear it. Haiti's another example. Right. And if we're using like, and you've probably heard this stat, I think a couple of people have talked about it. You know, the, the same island that has Haiti, which is number, I think 45 on the 155 countries on the same uh, island is the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican Republic is is doing incredible things, and it's the same people that live in Dominican Republic live in Haiti. I mean, they're the same brown people, if you want to label it that, and they're incredibly prosperous. So it has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with the, the country and the, the governmental policies that have made the Dominican Republic very successful, and Haiti not so much. 
Who was the the guy again? Peter that lives in New York. Peter uh, Godwin. And you know, growing up, I remember my grandfather was. Um, he would buy produce and and then truck it into East Tennessee, and and we would sell it. And we would go to these fields, and I would see these men and women just working under the hot sun, and they were just wonderful people to me. You know, as a young kid running through the watermelon fields and and the um, what else was he getting? The cantaloupes and stuff. And they were just so warm and and friendly to me. And we'd, they were picking peaches, and they would help me. I would help grade them on the assembly line, and the, they were just loved me as a little kid. And my memo was like, they're Haitians. So I grew up thinking the Haitian people are just. I want to go to Haiti. I want to be a Haitian when I grew up. You know, these are just amazing people. Uh, and then to see how they have to suffer down there, it, you know, because of of their country, is is terrible. But let's yeah. let's be honest about what it is down there. Well, I wanted to jump over to another topic before we need to wrap it up, Rich. Uh, what sure. about let's get into something that's right up your alley. Maybe something easy like your everyday carry. I, uh, I'm sure you've talked about this a hundred times, you know, on your show and your side. But since I'm new to to you and your business, I would I'm curious to to see what, to know what you recommend or what you carry, or at least some of it. The best thing I carry with me uh, is what's between my ears. You know, it, and I and I know that you know I don't know if you've heard General Mattis. He said that the most important six inches on the battle space is the six inches between your ears and he's absolutely right you know you can carry all the tools in the world but if you don't have the mind to employ them they're absolutely useless but i know people like to talk about gizmos and gadgets but uh, i would start with that the correct mindset but beyond that i carry a, a glock 19 it's got a red dot side on it because that i'm getting older and i don't see as good as i used to and acquiring a clear front sight with my <laughs> middle age eyes is a little tough so uh, i got that red dot and that does well for me but uh, glock 19 it's got a tlr 6 on it which is a little weapon mounted light that shines a light and a laser because i people that carry a gun and they don't have some sort of light to illuminate the threat but the, but they perceive to be a threat is is scary to me we're responsible for every round we fire especially in a defensive context so I carry a flashlight as well because sometimes I want to see things without pointing my pistol at them, right? Uh, I carry an edge weapon, but again, I train with edge weapons. And, um, you know, my, again, you should probably have Michael Janich on your show if you can get him on. He, he can talk, talk all day about edge weapons and why they're so important. And beyond that, really, I don't carry a whole lot of stuff. It's a flashlight. It's a light. Uh, I'm sorry, a flashlight, an edge weapon, a firearm, and I have a little thing, a pepper spray on my keychain because I've, uh, I've used pepper spray, and all your listeners should have pepper spray. If you're, if you're not comfortable with firearms, then, then don't go with that. But, but a can of pepper spray, that will cure almost anything. I, I've, I've had it been effective on dozens of people, never seen it personally for me not be effective. So it is a great equalizer. Good to know. What about uh, like you're dressed up, you know, like let's say church or a wedding and you have on a tucked in shirt. What's the best way to carry a, uh, a weapon, specifically a firearm or a knife concealed? Great question. You know, I 
believe in sticking to one – we call them family of guns. So I have a Glock 26, which is the subcompact, a Glock 19, which is the compact, and the 17, which is the full-size variant. But with one holster, all three of those firearms will fit into it, right? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, Shoot, okay. I yeah. got a few Glocks myself. I hadn't even tried the different holsters. Yeah, so – that is the amazing thing. You know, you can buy one holster and have all three guns fit in it. But the, I will often, if I'm wearing a suit, I'll carry my Glock 26, the subcompact, and an ankle holster. Um, it's not perfect solution, but uh, it definitely is better than having nothing. Because, you know, the best gun to have in a gunfight, Thad, is the one you got on you. It's not the one yeah. you wish you had or, oh, it's out in my car. What do you have? That's the best one you're going to have today. Yeah, good point. Well, thank you very much, Rich. What about in closing? Would you like to talk about anything else or just or sum anything up for us? Now, Thad, thank you for what you do and getting the word out there and these great Americans that you've had on your show and you know, just uh, letting people know that there are men and women out there that keep the wolf away from the door. And right now, as you and I sit here in our cozy, warm houses, there's, there's some American man and woman out there on the Ford Edge of Freedom that are – curled up and maybe freezing cold and let, let's keep them and their families in our thoughts and prayers tonight certainly i appreciate that and thank you for serving our country and also for you know, being in law enforcement i i actually don't think i've had another le on my show uh, i think you're the first and i had some other questions i wanted to ask you about that but we'll save that for another time i guess because i've yeah. you know i just god bless the the, the men and women in blue that just don't get the support they need deserve either. Yeah, and when I and when I got out, and this is we could talk about it next time. Is you know I went into the Red Cross um, and did dis, you know disaster relief uh, mm-hmm. work with the Red Cross, and because I believe that a life spent in service for me, and I'm, this is just Rich Brown, is the way I wanted to live my life. And if if I could serve my country and my community, either as a humanitarian with the Red Cross or out there. Uh, you know, putting a bayonet to our nation's enemies. That's what I wanted to do with this one life that God gave me. Yeah, well, you've done it and you're doing it. So thank you very much. Thanks, Dad. <laughs>